My guest today is the Global Head of Leadership Development in SAP. Here's a few things that his colleagues say about him. He's one in a million, and I'm very lucky to know him. Here's another. A wonderful coach and mentor who excels in helping others to grow and achieve their goals. Intelligent, modest, with great division. He's a master of understated, humble effectiveness. Here's a further one. I haven't met an individual like him before. He has a laser focus and unshakable determination to build and help others. Humility, awareness, and leadership spring to mind when I think about him. John Massey, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. I'm delighted to be here. And thanks for your kind words. None of them were mine, but I, I, I second all of them. I appreciate your time in coming them uh, today. And the real challenge for me was there was just so many of them. People should really take a look at your LinkedIn profile. I just got that. It, I'd say it's not even a flavor. So well done to you. That's it's an amazing achievement to get those kind of accolades. John, maybe you could tell me a little bit about where you grew up, what that was like. Sure. So I grew up in London. So I'm over half my life living in Dublin, married an Irish girl 32 years ago, and she still hasn't got rid of me yet, but she did bring me back to Sunny Island. I grew up on the 16th floor, a sky rise in near the Angel Islington. So a mad Arsenal fan and great, great part of England now. Islington's been done up so well since I moved back. It's fabulous. But yeah, we grew up in a, an estate with a lot of other Irish descent children. And the area that we lived was next to Guinness's buildings. So we were, we were in that kind of community because my parents are Tipperary and Limerick. So uh, hence they called me a plastic paddy when I first moved back. Yeah, we're off to a great start because as a supporter, I we won't hold that against me. Tell no, me, no. John, you, you said you married an Irish woman, brought you over here. I'm curious to know the pretense under which she lured you here. So it's interesting because when, in the pretense, unfortunately, was sad at the time. Her sister passed away unexpectedly. So literally we hadn't planned to move we were actually looking at houses in different parts of london and overnight our, our world changed and at that moment my wife's health was probably uh, more important than anything so we made the decision to to come back so she came back without a job i came back without a job and in uh, 1994 we were probably lucky in terms of timing because Whilst 94 wasn't a great year for finding work, we both managed to find work and Ireland turned around really from then. So as has always been the way in, in our lives, we've managed to make things work out. Circumstances unfortunate, but the timing was good. I know I came back here from the UK in 95 and again, it was just re really good timing. You worked for Dell. Was that your first job in Ireland? No, I sold fire extinguishers. My first job in Ireland for Apex Fire. And that's tough. Now you're literally, you've got one line that you can use. You've got, okay, a couple of products that you can sell, but really it's the one and you're, you're literally, you're in the car, knocking on doors, knocking on businesses. And, um, I was very fortunate to get into Dell, but also very grateful for the seven, eight weeks that I had selling fire extinguishers purely and simply because it was really, really good for me to know just how tough it was going to be from just joining and working in Ireland. Yeah, I know it wasn't your first sales role that you'd worked in sales in the UK. 
Was there anything in your early years that marked you out for a career in sales? No, I think that's where I was probably lucky. I, I didn't plan to be a salesperson. I left school very young with the intention of helping my parents, my mother in particular, out from a financial perspective because she and my father had got divorced. And as, as a direct consequence of that, any pennies that could be earned were invaluable. So my first wage was one pound five pence an hour. So I know that was a long time ago, but that was it. I felt at the time that it made a difference, the additional money coming in. Who knows? So I stepped out of education earlier than I would have planned to. I would have loved to have carried on with my education at that time, but it's something I went back to in, in later mm. life. But it was it, growing up was there's something in me for, when I was working that I was asked to cover for somebody for two weeks. So they were on the, gone on holiday. So the cover in the holiday was, John, would you please cover the sales department for the next two weeks? And the sales department was one person. So when I covered for the two weeks, I was by myself and I was selling teeth. And when the person came back from holiday, I went to my manager and said, I think you should double the size of the sales department. And he said, pardon? I said, I think I'd rather do this job than the job I was doing. Because I discovered something very nice when I got my paycheck. I'd sold gum shields in the first week of selling. So I'd made some sales. And in my wage check, which is a nice long piece of paper, as you read down the numbers and check the tax at the end, it said that I had more money than I was meant to. So I'd gone upstairs to HR to say, please, can you fix this? You overpaid me. And she explained to me that I don't something called commission. And as green as I was, it was... What do you mean I can keep it? She said, yes, you earned it. You sold something, you keep it. And that was the prelude to me having a conversation with my manager and saying, I'm swapping jobs. And I never left sales after that. And as I said, I started off selling teeth. I sold timber, I sold phones. I've sold lots of different things before finding um, a home with computers. And as I'm the least technical person that I know, and you mentioned Dell earlier, that was a phenomenal place because at that moment in time, the growth in the organization was incredibly fast. I met a bunch of people that, although I'm not there, I still see on a regular basis last Thursday, seven or eight of us were out having a pint or two, and it was great to still be able, the friends I made when we first moved back are still some, they're my best friends. And it's great because the camaraderie, when you sell alongside people, when you compete with them, you shake their hands if they beat you, but you take the pats on the back when you beat them. It just builds a really good life. And from a from an earnings perspective, it was way exceeded my expectations in terms of my learning or sorry, earning potential when I was leaving school. So it's been a very good experience. Looking through the things people say about you and your career, education and giving and helping, mentoring, coaching seems to be a big part of your life. Where does that come from? It's a huge part. When I was growing up, my father, unfortunately, was paranoid schizophrenic. And people say, huh? Yeah, so he had a mental illness. And it wasn't perhaps very well treated in this traditional sense. Sadly, my mother also was alcoholic. So when I was growing up, I'm the oldest of three. And really and truly, I think sometimes you take that responsibility on. But always around me, I had at least one 
good person. And the person I often refer to in my life that kept me sane was my grandmother. And my grandmother was always a very good influence, but she also trusted me and she also believed in me. And I think the fact that she did that for me, she was also gave me that piece around being kind. And mm -hmm. even though, as I said, with, with my father's illness, when I was uh, going to school in Highgate or St. Aloysius, people in my school would see that I was visiting the hospital, which happened to be on the same hill as my school. So people knew my father was ill and some people would take advantage of the fact or try to take advantage of the fact. And I lost a lot of friends because of the way they would say, oh, he's mental and stay away from him and his family are mental. And I realized at a very early age that you've got two things you can decide to do in life. And one of them was to stand up and that was what I did. So I said, I'm going to stand up, but I also knew that I had the backup of my grandmother and my dad was a good person. He was a kind person. He wasn't a bad person and neither was my mom. They just had uh, challenges that they had to deal with. So I think that set me up in terms of the person that I am and probably to my core, I'll always, if I can help somebody, try to help somebody. But I also realized you get a huge joy and huge satisfaction when something you did, even a small thing, and you see somebody just be their best self or just do something they didn't think that they could do. And when I first moved into management, it was one of the pieces that frightened the life out of me because the day I got the job, I was told I got the job, another young lady didn't get the job. And I was told, do not lose that young lady. She's the strength in your team. The manager I was working alongside, she went and took over the team that I had been on, but then took two people from my team, the two best people, and put them in her team. So I now had to recruit two new people, had to work with somebody who thought they should have got the job. And that night we had a celebration when they announced who'd won different awards and who was the new manager. And I'm standing around with the team and they were all expecting me to know all the answers. And I just went, what have I done? What have I done? And it was in that moment that you just realized, okay, you've got what you always wanted. You're now the manager of, the t of my first sales team. And we rolled up the sleeves and we worked hard. But during that time, I had some very young people, um, but they all worked the same as I worked, they worked. And so I learned very quickly that people will copy, people will follow your example. It took me six months to actually make what I would call my first management decision. When my manager and myself, he'd said to me, please don't lose that individual. She's your strength in your team. And this individual was having a bad day, took something out on one of the team and behaved in, in a way that they shouldn't have. So I took them to one side and said, would not accept that behavior. It wasn't my proudest moment in terms of how I did it, but it was no way would I accept anybody speaking to somebody like that. Mm. Certainly not as I saw it on my watch. And then I went to a manager and said, that person's going to leave because I've just said not acceptable. And he started laughing. It's not funny. I was quite stressed about it at the time when I think back and he just turned around and said good he said what do you mean good he said you've made your first management decision and he always gave me space and he always gave me space to learn and he always gave me space to make mistakes and that was the first time I realized that was what he did sometimes he might misdirect you just to to test but he always said one thing and it was um don't limit yourself 
And I never forget that. He's one of two leaders that I've worked with that have inspired me significantly. And I've worked with lots of very strong and very good leaders. But I think the first manager that you have that gives you a manager position always has a huge impact on you. So I've always remembered that. And by accident, more than by design, after 30, 35 years of sales manager and sales leadership roles, and sometimes stepping into non-sales roles and managing non-sales teams as well, I happened to get into managing the team that looked after our enablement, as well as our partners, as well as a couple of different teams. And the manager or director I was working for at this stage said to me one day, we need to start spending all that money on sales training because it's costing us too much money. I want to find out if we can get two people trained. So the person who does our enablement was one of them that was trained. And I said, who's the second? <laughs> and he just pointed at me and he said, sorry, he said, you know it all. So you may as well learn how to teach it. So that got me then into the teaching piece. And for always, I always would consider myself a coach or a mentor, but in more through the structures that we had, I had the chance to train as a coach and the company invested in a number of us becoming coaches. And I was one of the ones that was selected. So I was very fortunate to do that and realized, Hey, there's a whole world that I didn't know about coaching. So again, that learning piece, then that hunger, that thirst, that desire to keep learning and contributing. But to come back to the piece you asked, seeing people be successful, seeing people exceed their own expectations brought me back to, did I think when I first went out to work that I'd be doing and leading and managing some of the jobs that I'd done? Probably not. So good people have good influences around me at the right time. So I was lucky. So John, I know you, you said earlier that you left school early, that you took a lot of responsibility on your shoulders to look after your parents who were ill, you left school early and you were an eldest child as well. And I'm just curious to know how that influenced who you became as a manager. That's a great question. I think that is something I probably didn't know until maybe a little bit later in life and understanding the, the impact that it had on me. But one of the things that you develop is a thick neck, is determination. And in sales, you need to be resilient. You need to be steadfast. You need to focus on customer. And I think that the thing that it gave me, work was a great escape for me, as was school, but work was a great escape because you could throw your mind into something. You'd be thinking about that in that moment. And one of the best things for me in working with customers was very much that I would probably wasn't the best salesperson. There were better salespeople in each of the different organizations that I worked in. I had a knack of people buying from me. So people liked to buy from me, but I was very good with them. I pay attention. I was always in with them. And I think that was the second piece that I realized is that if you're in somebody's company, pay attention because you don't know all the things that are going on. And I guess with having my dad, who quite often people would not necessarily know there was anything wrong or with my mom, just seeing what 
stage she was or she wasn't, you became very aware. So you'd always be aware of the surroundings, aware. And maybe that gave me a little bit more attention to how people were reacting during meetings. If a person was connected with us or not, I think maybe those pieces happened. But definitely the resilient side of it. And I wasn't alone. My my middle sister was phenomenal with my mum. She was scared of my dad, but she was phenomenal with my mum. And it was only when I got that bit older and I maybe saw her with my mum when I realised the other things that it had given me was patience. And I think that resilience is a piece that the awareness of maybe trying to not necessarily read people, but read the situation and that patience piece. And I think the patience is probably, I've had some good combinations where I've worked with the impatient people, where they'll bring me along sometimes because I'm too patient and I'll hold them back sometimes when they were quick to jump in, when actually the person that's nearly there, just let them, let them get there. Mm-hmm. So I think it probably gave me those three things. I'm wondering if there's something else as well, and that you're obviously familiar with that expression that says, be kind you never know what everybody you never know what somebody else is going through and you would have had that experience at an early age i'm wondering if that made you more tolerant and understanding of other people quite probably i've that my wife has always (laughs) always said to me you've got some odd friends and she never meant it in a bad way she just said you've got some great friends but now and then you have one or two of the friends are just different and I went, I, but I was never frightened of different. And I think that was probably, if you show a little kindness, sometimes the people will gravitate towards you as well, because maybe that you're the only person that's giving them that, that time. It, it's interesting because my dad always said to me, take as you find. And I always repeat that to people because that was a huge part for me growing up. But I'll never forget my grandmother, who was just the kindest person that I ever met. And it's sad to see what my sister said to me yesterday, that the Queen reminded her of Lanny Massey. And I was laughing because she looks like my other grandmother, who, shall we say, in the same league, to be keep it polite. But yeah, I was touched by kindness. I was lucky to have that person around me. And they were my biggest influencer in, in my life. So I'd say that kindness, that tolerance must have come come from her and she'd lost my granddad when she had a young family so she'd come over to England to to rear her family and so they never had it easy and I think that when you're when you see that and when you see how even when people didn't have a lot they always had so much and the much they normally had was the ability to laugh the ability to find and almost any situation funny I saw 16, could be 15, but 16 police trying to tackle my father one day after. That, that would just say we'd been kidnapped for want of a better way of putting it, but we hadn't let us out of my grandmother's for a number of days. And the police couldn't get in and they didn't want to break in because they didn't want, they had to make decisions at, at the time. So my uncle came round to um, help, but my uncle had a bad heart. So I was running in between making sure the policeman couldn't beat my dad because if I was them, that's what I would have wanted to do because they had the strength he had was incredible and making sure my uncle who was sitting on the steps wasn't having a heart attack and I was running in and out between the two of them and if it's only when you say those things out loud that it sounds surreal but I can still see my uncle sitting there on the steps saying go back and make sure that your dad's all right and I can still see my dad screaming at me saying they're not real policemen they're not real policemen and trying so hard to make sure that they also didn't destroy my nans 
uh, flat that we'd all lived in for the last five or six days. And it's moments like that, you, the ability to laugh, a beautiful thing mm. that we got from all the masses and actually even on my mum's side, the family, the, the O'Hara's, Irish people have an ability to take what's in front of them and smile. Maybe not in that moment, but certainly, sure. certainly after as we did. There's an experience like that, John, does that, is it a blessing or a curse? Is it a burden or a gift in terms of, it's a lot to lay on somebody who's young, but at the same time, you can't learn what you get from that in a book either in terms of the resilience and the strength of character that comes with it. It's, I think where it comes out is for your own, you want, better and that sounds like it's judgy but you do you, you want always and look around and the, all, all of them have today and you say all of them but you go actually it's not all of them but for me it was about okay I never wanted to let my grandmother down because she she always had high thoughts of me there wasn't everybody in the family that had those high thoughts my mum's mom always said listen you're going to have mental illness like your father that was tougher in many regards to hear them talk about my father like that but when they talk about me like that and put me down as as often or as many times as the opportunity arose because i was like my dad and i also i protected my dad why he's my dad i'll protect him the same as i would my mom but i'd protect i'd protect my dad he took me to arsenal that that was our safe that was our safe place growing up that was our safe place and he, you go there you just be no worries about anything else you just concentrate on the football even if in those days it was boring arsenal but the pick to answer your question what i think what i always remember is there's always somebody who's worse off this, everybody has their stories and everybody has their life and I, my life could have been worse I've spoken and worked with people that had it a lot harder than I did I still grew up in an environment as crazy as it sounds where I knew I was loved where I had good people around me there was food on the table we had a roof over our head so for me I don't I see I listen that's my story that's how I grew up what my story will be moving forward again is you're going you're in a, you're a product of the environment you're a product of the experiences that you have I was probably least affected by it because I was the oldest and my sisters were probably more negatively affected some sometimes I think and my middle sister always says to me the stuff that you remember when you were growing up that she just, yeah, said, but your way of dealing things was to just pretend they didn't happen. Whereas I was just, everything stuck. Not a good thing. But no, I don't feel sorry for myself. My kids sometimes say, Dad, would you write a book? And I say no. Um, but there's a million stories that I can that, that I can refer to for those moments. But I've been lucky. And I think I've been lucky all, all the way through. I think I've been fortunate in that at school, I play soccer for the school team. So being one of the smallest boys in the year with people that kind of questionable parents, not meant in that way, but in other people's minds, mm -hmm. didn't get bullied because I played soccer mm -hmm. for the school team. I've got some amazing friends still from my young, from those young days. And work was always a phenomenal safety net for me. Mm. And I think as a direct result, that meant that when I was in work, I was in work and I worked very hard. I think that piece has never changed. And mm. whilst I didn't get all the breaks, sometimes you kind of, you know what, I also don't think that I was any worse off than the next mm. person. Yeah, I, I want to talk to you now about leadership in a moment, but there was a couple of things that struck me. One was when you talked about your grandmother was the importance of having somebody who believes in you. 
yeah. as a rock and an anchor in all of the stuff that goes on that you have to deal with when you have that kind of North Star. That's what I'm taking from what, what you're saying is that's totally what was important to you. Totally. Yeah. And I'm just curious to know, when you go back, I was going to say Highbury, the Etihad, isn't it? Is it a different experience than going to a different... You said there was a safe space. There's this, probably a sense of peace there, a connection. Do you re-experience that when you go back even? Yeah. Always. I, Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Because I'm fascinated by that. I will because it's, for, for me, I t I'll tell you a story about this in, in in the moment, which maybe I shouldn't say out loud. But when I was, when I go back, we, we were stoned outside the Arsenal. So by the ticket office. And just my kids' names are on it. And I'd always be going around shouting up the arse. And in North London, that's absolutely fine. But as my wife said to me when she saw the stone, because she didn't commission it, I had to rob the bank to get that one done. And she said, you didn't even have the decency to put your own name on it. You put your kids' names on it. So it's up the arse, Kate, Jack, and Emily Massey. And I'll always go touch the stone when I'm over there because that's my dad. That's mm. that's but that's where we that's where we grew up. The day my dad died, we went to Arsenal. And people said, I've just seen that you guys are at Arsenal. I said, Yeah, Arsenal just won. Everybody thinks we're supporting the opposition because we're standing and we're all three of us are roaring crying. And they're saying, Are you okay? I said, Yeah, no, we're good. <laughs> because that was the emotion. And it's funny because he gave us Elvis which my wife doesn't like me to remind people of, and he gave us Arsenal. But we've also got another plaque on the sidewall by Thierry Henry's statue, which also is one, two, three equals one. And that was the expression my dad always used to say. And that, so for us, we may be, with hindsight, with hindsight, we were probably kinder to my dad than we were with my mum's illness, with my dad's illness, because my dad's illness never felt what you make a decision. And that was probably the one small thing sometimes that I know may, maybe I could have understood what was going on with my mum a little bit more as well. Now I have my P Massey, which confuses people with the jersey, with her name on my jersey. And they're going, who's P Massey? They talk about my mum. That's a lovely story. And you mentioned oh, Thierry Henry as well. <laughs> I have to tell you this story because this is a shopping yeah. story. My mother, unfortunately, she was in hospice when she wasn't feeling very well. And I went to collect her from, sorry, went to see her in the hospice. We used to go over every week or every second week as much as we could when she wasn't. And she said, I've bought you a present. I got that thing off the tinternet. I said, the what? And she tried to explain what it was. I said, the World Wide Web. She said, that's it. And I said, what? And so behind her back, she had this. So she's in the hospital, said, Mum, you need to give that back. Where did you get that? And she said, he won't want it where he's gone. I said, what? He said, it was lying there in the room. And I said, Mum, you can't do that. That's some family heirloom. That's something that that, that man's family will want. Which room was it? And she said, it's too late. Anyway, I didn't steal it. I said, Mum. This is me. I'm going, I'm going to give it back. I said, but I didn't steal it. I said, what do you mean? She said, I didn't steal it. I said, what do you mean? She said, I left £1.50 on the side. And that was my mum. Because I have to be honest, the last 20 years with my mum, the relationship I had with my mum, when my dad died, she stopped drinking. Mm. There, was a, there was an irony in that. He never stopped. He idolised my mum. And when, she, when he died, she stopped drinking. 
it's it absolutely made no sense to any of us, but we were delighted that she had. But he also would have been very happy, the fact that she'd stopped the drinking. So that, for me, reminds me of my mom, because first of all, she bought it for pound fifty for me. And it was for her, she said, I couldn't buy you anything. I just want to give you that because she, un she understood the connection, I, I guess, that was the real piece. But uh, my whole life was a safe place to be, was Arsenal. So that's a big part of it. Yeah. Your story there, when you mentioned Thierry, Thierry Henry, it's actually almost helped me come closure on Thierry Henry as well. Because I've never been able to forgive him. I know. But now I have to. For which one though? Well, there's only one that I care about, and that was the little hand, the little, the little flick back. Yes, it was shocking. And it wasn't even that, I have no problem with the flick back. It was afterwards when he was out on the pitch, when the game was over, commiserating. And I'm thinking, how can you do that? You should be hanging your head in shame. But hey. I remember the moment, and I remember him after saying they should replay the game. I thought at least he had the decency to say, yes, I did it. And yes, I should have played the game. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but he didn't say that to the ref at the time. But anyway. <laughs> he should have done. We have to move on. I have to let it go. I have to let it go. No, I thought it was from when he ran in front of the Tottenham fans and came down on his knees like that. That's why I was asking which time. Okay. All right. And fairness, I'm only a fair weather sports fan. I was a, when I was a kid, I was. I had my room festooned with Tottenham supporters. But that was back in when Steve Perryman and Glenn Hodge. Glenn Hodge, what a player. Oh, superb, superb. Tell me, I want to talk a little bit about leadership. You work a lot with sales leaders. And what is the one thing that you, one lesson that you have to impart that you, you keep having to come back to all the time to either reinforce or just tell it again? I think there's two. I think there's two. I talk to a lot of leaders as part and parcel of, of my own job. It's just leadership development. It's mostly sales leaders, but it's not just sales leaders. And what you see common across a lot of the leaders is they try too hard. And what they need to do is be themselves first and foremost. That's the first thing I say to any leader, please be yourself. If you try mm -hmm. to lead someone else's way or be somebody else, it's just not going to work. But I'll always come back to if a car is not working if a tv is not working if something is not working the first things you do is check the basics is it plugged in is there petrol all those different things and what i always say to a leader is when you're managing first and leading second or the other way around if people prefer you need to do the basics you need to do the basics well you need to do them consistently and you need to give the person a chance and your decision making is the last day of a quarter make the decision but it's the first day of the call to make a different decision why because you're teaching your team you're showing your team how to do their job your job is to get the best out of people your job is to motivate but is also to identify what's the person's strengths what's the areas that they need work on will they ever fix that well actually for something they'll never fix how do you work around it for them because sometimes you might have and i've seen people that were phenomenal as transactional sales and they've been put into account management roles because and i've looked and said but that person's a one-hit wonder that person loves the kill they don't want to build a relationship so for me it's about doing the basics and doing the basics means know your people and know your business so i'd say that those two pieces know your people and know your business 
is the advice I often give to managers. I still remember my first, I think I said earlier that when I, let, I made a decision about the young lady that I wasn't putting up with the behavior, my manager said, you've made your first management decision. It takes time, so be patient with people as they learn that as well. I can tell you, but if I go and experience it, I've now got a better understanding of what's required for me to do the job. What have you had to work on most of your Probably confidence. Probably the thing I had to work on the most was confidence. And I think that definitely came from my upbringing because you'd, I found as, as much as my grandmother kept me going, that was more about determination. A lot of the rest of the family thought I'd amount to nothing. And I think that those pieces make a difference. So I think confidence. I will definitely come across much more confident today than I would have done in the past. And I think what's helped me there is I've gone back to, I went back to study. So one of the things that I was missing was primary degree. So I did that at mm. 37. And then at 52 or 53, I just completed a master's. So that's given me a different confidence because I'm also reading a huge amount more and trying a lot more to do different things and try different things. And then of course, the people around you, when they come to you all the time, when they're looking for your support, your guidance, be it coaching, be it mentoring, mm. being just a set of ears, you start then to get rid of that imposter syndrome that you often hear mentioned. But confidence was the thing that I probably had the least of when I first started. I want you to talk to me a little bit about this, that uh, something I've noticed is this just an observation. People who leave school early, it seems that there's a in that has to be filled later on. You see people like yourself, you go back to college to get the degree that somehow or another, they feel that it's, it, they feel the absence of that when they're working with others who have it, maybe they feel a lack of confidence, whatever it is. So that's on one side, and I can fully understand that. But then you look over the other side and you'll see Bill Gates, Larry Ellison, all left college, don't have that. And I'm curious to know, are there different things? Are there two sides of the same coin? Does it matter even? It, it does. I. It does to the person. It, it may not to the people around them. It does to the person. And I think it, for me, it was school was always unfinished business. I have a, a great friend, Tibbs, who went to university and he went and did what I wanted to do. And he's still a great friend to this day. And I always looked at him and went, you know what? He's, he has an amazing life. He's had an amazing time. And that he's also really a smart young man as well. And so that I always went, you know what, circumstances have been different. Maybe I would have got that opportunity to do it. So it was always in the background. The other piece that you would have seen in any job advertised was second level, third level, et cetera. They were always looking for the, so you're almost growing up in with that. In if you want this type of job, you need to do this. All my cousins went predominantly not all but predominantly in, into building because a lot of the irish my uncle built the barbican in in london he was the man in charge of that my dad helped him on that when he was building that my dad worked in the cafe royale and they were the jobs that were almost expected although my dad will always say the cafe royale was an amazing uh, experience because he got to meet so many people so I guess for me, the education piece was first time around, it was to prove that I could. The second time around being the masters, it was because I absolutely wanted 
to do it. And mm. I'm still doing more stuff right now. My wife says, will you ever stop? And I said, no, that's something now that it's something that I love. But I'll also encourage others to do it as well. And what you see with, with in, in, in our roles is that um, when people talk about career development, I talk about skills development or new knowledge, how to manage change, how to do different things. And the, the reason being is because the world is changing at such a pace that you need to invest in you. If you don't invest in you, you're going to be, there's younger people than me that will run or try to run past. I'd say try to make them run round. But it's always that, it's always that challenge. So my three and my son has just got a placement in TUD. So I heard him jumping up and down on the bed on last Thursday. He was so happy. At 19, I'm going, well, nearly 19. Fantastic. My eldest is uh, just started teaching in Bray. And again, phenomenal because she's very excited to be doing that. Mm-hmm. And one daughter, middle Emily, she's heading off. At some stage, she's heading off to London. And that scares me. But she needs to do those things. But you look and you see that they are well-equipped both from a, their CV will be nice because, but they've also worked all the way through college and Jack's working through through the last couple of years as well. So they've got a good work ethic. They've also realized that learning is important. And that piece around you want better for yours, you want them to be good people. You want them to be people you can be proud of. And already they're at that stage where I'm very proud of them and they're, they still haven't left home, but my wife has an issue with that, not me. <laughs> your primary degree, degree that was the imi was it the that was the imi degree? yeah it was yeah i did i did that exact same program probably a couple of years before you i did mine in 97 there and so that's why i understand that was my first time as well i was 32 when i did that so i, I can understand the need it can fill maybe but yeah there's the role it serves I, I, we're up for this Thursday, we're up for an award, Peter Critton, who was a teacher with the North Middlesex University and myself and my colleague, Dara Power, we, we work together on what we call a series called Take 10. And what we've been doing, we've been interviewing different leaders around the organization and just a snippet of something on grit, something on managing high-performing teams, something on influence, just 10 minutes from each of these different leaders. And now it's all around the world. We've had, in terms of content, over 660 hours consumed in these 10-minute pieces. And what, you, what it was with Dara, Dara is super guy, does some amazing drawings. So he started to draw his interpretation of the interviews done. So we've got about 40 drawings and we turn those into a flip book. So we just released the flip book in, in internally. And the buzz from doing things like that and still continuing our education. I've done the majority of the interviews with the different leaders and just listening to them and hearing their stories sometimes before, sometimes afterwards, not just in, in that 10 minutes. It just makes you realize that education is everything. Of course, we talk about happiness and health, but the education makes such a big difference to people and, and what they can do. So for me, I will always push that message out to people when they're ready, when they're ready and they, and they yeah. go to, to drink the Kool-Aid, then it makes yeah. a big difference. In all of the interviews you've done, what story has moved you the most? Oh, one that I liked was be yourself because when Brian spoke, he talked about, Hey, don't try to be somebody else, be yourself. But the one that moved me the most was probably a young lady called Supriya. 
and she talked about the different cultures and she talked about change. And what she talked about was she moved from a culture in India to half her life and then moved to the United States. Yeah. And when she shared the two, I mean, immediately you think, well, are they not polar opposites? But when she shared her story and you see how she carries herself and she sees how she manages through all the challenges of, of maybe other people and obstacles that other people put, but she held herself always as a lady. She held herself always true to her values. And I think that's the important piece to me. She held true to her values. And then you look at it, but how did you survive in a, almost an opposite type culture to the one that you came from, except maybe the expectations of the female were more aligned. And she's done incredibly well. She's one of those, a bit like Brian, it's an inspirational leader in, in, and hearing her story was phenomenal for me because also when you hear her talk, she talks about support from her husband. She talks about the, the rearing two daughters in with the two cultures as part and parcel of their background. And mm. so for me, it's, I like people's stories. I've always liked people's stories. For her to do as well as she has done and face much more difficult challenges than I believe I faced, I, that's probably the one that inspires me the most. There's a great book in that already, in, in the collection of stories. Yes, yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Tell me, in terms of what you're doing currently, what's motivating you most? I went back into managing a team recently. So they have people that do my job now around the six different regions that we have. And working with them is pushing me. And so we're, we're very motivated because they're a terrible thing to say with the un un unconscious or conscious bias. They, we're all different but we're all very motivated by the same thing. So seeing somebody, somebody do well, seeing somebody do something that they didn't think they could do. We run a future leaders program. And one of the ambitions this year was to bring the future leaders program to the broader SAP, because we've always run it in EMEA North and South where I'm based. And we've 16 people that have become leaders or managers roles as a direct result. And my manager said, yeah, but can you do that elsewhere? And we've already exceeded the number from last year, what we've gone globally and working with the Business Women's Network as well and seeing, hang on, we've this whole piece around leadership, everyone's a leader, everyone has the potential to be a leader. So the work itself, working with the people that are um, striving for the same has been really, really positive. And I had energy, I had energy anyway, because I've always said, if I'm bored, I don't stay. And I love yeah. to be busy. I love to be in a situation where actually what we're doing is making a difference. And mm -hmm. more and more, the feedback I get from the people that I work with, there's one, one, people think that the impact can only be on new people, on younger people, the less experienced people. But I got a note for, about one of my team last week and she, the lady said, I'm 20 years in this role. And I'm so grateful that you take the time, spend the time and help me in my role, you've helped me reinvent myself. And wow. thank you so much. And he said, I'm sending this to your manager because I want them to know as well. And it was great because I just replied, this, we're so grateful to have this young lady on our team and thank you for calling it out. But I can go around the team and we receive those, not every single day, but we receive them regularly enough to say, you know, what we're doing is making a difference. So that's very motivating in its own way. Yeah, that, that making a difference is a strong theme there as well. 
it's the purpose, I guess. It's fun. It's all about. It's fun. I always say run towards something, not away from something. And even though there's moments where maybe we just want to run away, it's if you can find your joy, if you can find and do what you love. And even when you listen to some of the CAO conversations at this moment in time, and someone says, well, I need to do level eight because everybody expects me to do level eight. But if the level eight is something you're not going to enjoy, why would you do that? Go do level seven and then go through the back door because you'll get to where you want to get to. It might take a little bit longer. But guess what? You'll get there if you really want to get there. So I've always believed that you should go find your joy. And if it's, if you're not sure, try something different because you might find it that way. Career, career, careers are like spaghetti. They're not linear. <laughs> no, that's for sure. That's for sure. Tell me, if you had a day off, or I guess, how do you like to spend your downtime? Oh, my wife will beat me now. She says I don't take enough time off. If mm. I was choosing and Arsenal weren't playing, be playing soccer. Probably playing soccer. So we still play. I, we coach, coach the years up in Enniskerry Soccer Club. And my two daughters initially, and then Wayside with my son. So my most fun is Friday night between seven and eight, and we go next door and we play soccer, all the coaches. Um, and that for me is the best hour of the week. And growing up, it was always the, it was always for me was my other safe space was going and kicking football and playing football. I played Southern Amateur when I was younger in England and I would never have ever have made the grade, but I played as uh, to a grade that was by playing players that were better than me, which meant my game improved. But I played with some phenomenal footballers, but we always had fun afterwards as well. So for me, that may be a game of golf, but uh, Irish weather doesn't always no, pie. although right no. now it's very different. Yeah, yeah. There's a lesson in that in itself. Is that the playing against people who are better than you as well makes everybody better. That's totally. That's an interesting observation. Totally. A couple of quick questions for you, John, before I let you go. If your house were burning down and your family are safe, your computer and phone are safe. Obviously, if you have any animals, they're safe. And you time to run back in and grab one item and rescue it. What would it be? Oh, okay. Bad <laughs> question. Okay. Well, it, it, you know what? It would be this and it would be the backup of all my pictures. Because my whole life, even as a youngster, I always had a camera. And really? yeah, I always had yeah. a camera and I love taking pictures. Yeah, And I guess it would be the pictures. And whereas the family would always call me a pain whenever yeah. there's a family event on. They say, can we have the, the backup of all the pictures, please? Yeah, yeah, no yeah, yeah. It's funny that because you, you I should be, does Teddy have a name? No, really? Teddy okay. doesn't, I never named him. Yeah. I never named him. <laughs> yeah, my, but this, we were talking about, that was the, and you mentioned cameras, that's my thing I would grab. That was a camera my grandfather brought back from France after the First World War. Wow. He had stayed on in France In he was in the War Grace Commission. He was a gardener and that was his lifeline to home. He would take pictures of people he worked with and friends he had made and send them back home. Incredible. Notes on the back of the pictures. Yeah, my mother gave me that before she died and that's, yeah, it's not worth much. It's $35 on eBay, but. It's worth much more than that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. What other type of pictures do you like to take? I used to take a lot of sporting pictures. I've moved. I've, we went to Australia 
at one stage and I discovered such different colors, such different wildlife, such different um, flowers. Like Dancer right, wildlife, I like taking pictures of wildlife. But it was, growing up, it was always family and it was always mm. ideally when they weren't looking and also when they were looking, but just natural, nat- natural photos. And over the years, all those family moments, I do remember my niece got married. I went around and took a picture of every couple at the table just because it'd be nice for them to remember the ones they do, they don't see that when they look back. And there was one young man who was by himself. So I had to give the camera to someone else. So we became a couple. And my niece just looked at me afterwards and said, he still hasn't stopped talking about that. So for me, it should be fun. So it'd still be the same. Still be the same thing. Even taking pictures, it should be fun. Yeah. Super. Final question for you, John. When your time on this planet is done, and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of it to be? <laughs> I can't say up the arse because my wife would shoot me. <laughs> but those that know me would probably laugh if that was the title of my book. My son it has to be really. It does really. My son, or what an ass, maybe. My son, Jack, when when he was born, my brother-in-law, Michael, was a mad Liverpool supporter. And mm. there's two nephews older than Jack who are both Liverpool mm. supporters. And their dads are Chelsea and Leeds. Mm. So mm. Michael taught, <clears throat> did his best to try and get all of the lads to support Liverpool. So I knew he'd try to do the same with Jack, but I also knew that it wasn't going to happen. And Jack, why do you say Liverpool, Liverpool? And when he'd say Liverpool, Liverpool, I'd say it's shit. That's a shock, it's a shocking it's a shocking thing to, to even admit out, out openly. But in the context, so it worked. Michael stopped saying mm. to Jack, Liverpool, because Jack would say, these are almost his first words. But where I got in serious trouble with my wife was whenever we'd be out, if anybody said Liverpool, Jack would go, he's shit. And we were in with the, you may have, you may, may or may not know Tim McCarthy, who was the managing director in Dell and I worked with Tim, mm. an absolute gentleman and uh, a lovely guy. And I remember we were at a Christmas party and Jack's alongside me and Jack's got his Arsenal jersey on and Tim's son comes up and Tim says, oh, look, my, my, my son supports Liverpool. And Jack says, it's shit. And I went, well, that's it. Tim, Tim said, yeah, pardon? Yeah, yeah. And I went, <laughs> I just shook my head. He said, my son supports Liverpool. And he went, it's shit. So <laughs> Tim just looked at me and I went, okay, now my wife was right. I should never have taught him yeah. to do that. I've got some jerseys alongside me of an island jersey, two island jerseys and two Arsenal jerseys. I'd probably put those under my arm if I was running out the door as well because they're signed but listen it's a labor of love and as life would be as I said I was lucky I met an Irish girl in 1988 and life's been good to us so no regrets Paul at all and yes sorry that you support Tottenham but we forgive you that's all right you know what you've almost made me convert my older brother is an Arsenal fan so he was Arsenal and then the next brother is Chelsea and the only reason I became Tottenham was match of the day and I must have been six or seven years of age and because my older brother supported Chelsea they were playing that night on match of the day black and white tv said and I wanted to support Chelsea but he wouldn't let me because I was four years younger and I was the annoying little brother and it just so happened the team that beat Chelsea that night was Spurs Fantastic. so that's why I became a Spurs fan that's the truth of it yeah. that's the right way this is John Massey 
Thank you so much for being my guest today. My, my pleasure, Paul. Thanks very much for the invitation and good luck to you with the final ones you do. Take care.